Trigger warning, the Resilience Project provides an open space for people to share their personal experiences. Some content in this podcast may include topics that you may find difficult. The listener's discretion is advised. Hello, friends. Welcome to Radical Resilience, a weekly show where I, Blair Kaplan Venables, have inspirational conversations with people who have survived life's most challenging times. We all have the ability to be resilient and bounce forward from a difficult experience. And these conversations prove just that. Get ready to dive into these life-changing moments while strengthening your resilience muscle and getting raw and real. And here we are with Pamela French. Hi, Pamela. Hello, Blair. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited, Pat. So I've never met Pamela in person. And um, we were in the same kind of cohort for mentoring in the publicity space. And we had this connection call. um, And I just felt like this soul, soul connection to her. I feel like she's like a big sister, like in another life, maybe like we were like best friends or family, but I'm so excited to have you here, Pamela. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. And I remember from the moment I first saw you in that group where we met, I was like, I'm pretty sure I know her. And I spent weeks trying to figure out where I knew you from. And yeah, I feel that resonance too. I love it. And, you know, you have such a fascinating story and I would love if you can share it with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, what I'd love to share is that I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Ontario. And so my view of the world and what was possible in it um, was pretty small. Like I just didn't know what was out there. And in my early 20s, I was in Canada's capital, Ottawa. And when you live in Ottawa, it's like a big thing to work for the government because it's so secure and so stable. And um, there's lots of different things that you can do. And so I was like, try my best to get in full time and like have that security and stability. And uh, I got offered this full time job. And then about two weeks later, I got a call from a friend who was working with the United Nations in Afghanistan for the 2005 elections. Now I'm giving away my age. And um, and they said, listen, we really need someone to come and help out with the security team. If you can be here in 10 days, the job is yours. Whoa. 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 First of all, A, what does that even mean, security team? B, like Ottawa, for those of you who don't know, Ottawa is very far from Afghanistan. And like, I don't know how easy it is to get a government job, but like, I don't imagine it being very easy because everyone wants one for the stability. Yeah. Yeah. I had spent almost four years in temp jobs with like six week placements, uh, just trying to get enough experience so that someone in government would want to hire me full time. And so, yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big deal to have this job. And, uh, but also I was like, I I could see what my life would be like because I'd been around lifelong public servants uh, for four or five years. And so I was like, nope, I'm going to go work with the United Nations in Afghanistan. So like you got presented this opportunity. What was like the process that went through your mind? Like, did it feel like a fuck yes? Or were you like, oh, maybe. Or were you like, no, I can't. Like walk us through like, 
the process you went through and then what happened when you made the decision. Yeah, absolutely. So those two things I want to share with you about that. The first one was, it was absolutely the first ever fuck yes I'd experienced in my life. Ooh, I did not hesitate for a minute. Yeah. Like I moved with velocity. I made it there in 12 days. They still gave me the job. It only took me 12 days to quit everything. Like leave my boyfriend, tell him to sell the house we owned. Like I packed up in a hurry. And then the second thing I want to share is that while I was there, I can't remember, I was there for about seven months for the election. And, uh, and I'll talk more about security later. But I had this moment where I was coming into work one morning and I was being greeted by all of the people at the front gate. And then as I was walking to the security building, which was at the back of the compound, everyone's saying, good morning, Miss Pamela. And, you know, I'm having all these wonderful good mornings. And I realized I am walking my own personal red carpet right now. I am exactly where I'm meant to be doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing with exactly the people that I'm meant to be with right now. Wow. Yeah. And so that set a bar for the rest of my life. I was like, is this a red carpet moment? Yes or no. And that's how I make decisions. That's I like that even better than like, is this a fuck? Yes. Like, is this a red carpet moment? Yeah. So tell me more about your red carpet moment and like how you got there. Like what, what tell us, like, what is that job? What does that mean to do security? Like, did you have like a badge and a gun? Like, what does that even mean? Well, it's kind of funny actually, because I was working with a whole bunch of like ex special forces from Australia, Canada, and the US uh, and the UK, because they'd all been hired or contracted out to be on the security team. And they needed someone who could project manage and organize because they just wanted to be running around with their, you know, guns and stuff. (laughs) I love it. And so I was responsible for all incoming. Uh, security briefing. So the moment any other staff member landed in Afghan in Kabul, um, I was the first face they got to see and I would give them their walkie talkie and teach them about the rules and, you know, how to stay safe. And I was responsible for knowing where every staff member was at the end of every day throughout the country. So if you had to travel for any reason, then you went through me for clearance to move. And, uh, and I put out all the call lists for the duty officers. So Afghanistan was not a safe place to be at the time and sadly not super safe right now for many people either and so we had nightly calls everybody would call in to say that they were safe and accounted for so I was responsible for those lists wow and how long were you out there it was seven months the uh I landed there in uh in April or May I think and the election was in September uh and then there was a closeout period of a couple of months so I got home just before Christmas Can you walk us through like what a day in the life of your life there was like, like walk us through it. Yeah, there was a lot of work. Um, Like six days a week, I would go into the office and work and one day we would have off. Um, And there wasn't a lot of places that we were allowed to go other than work and our homes. So work was like the only thing to do. Electricity wasn't reliable. So there wasn't a lot of... uh, entertainment per se but the beauty was that um we had an afghan family that looked after us in our home and so they would you know bribe the guy who would give us electricity so we could have hot showers and um and take care of us 
Um, and so I'm still in touch with that family today. Wow. Yeah. I, I know you said back then, and I, I know now it's not safe either, but back then it wasn't safe. Did you have any moments that you felt like your safety was compromised? You know, that's a really beautiful question. And I'll share a story. I was there for about 10 days. And um, so it's new to me. Like I'm a little farm girl from Ontario, you know, <laughs> like this is a big deal. And I, I don't have a military background or any kind of security training um, per se. I was working in business continuity planning at the time. And so that was, that was my in the contact who called me. And uh, so I was there for about 10, 12 days and someone noticed that there was a black flag on the roof of a neighbor's house. And so I guess in some countries that could be seen as marking um, a target. And so uh, like the security people in the house that I lived in, because there was a lot of people from the security team there, they like they went into panic mode and they were like calling in, you know, they they thought we were going to be a target. And I'm sitting on the couch, sipping a glass of red wine. And this like 20 year, you know, United Nations election observer worker sits beside me and says, you seem remarkably calm for somebody who has just arrived and has never done this before. What's your secret? And I said, listen, when I arrived 12 days ago, they dropped everybody off at these big guest houses where hundreds of people stay. We're in a house that has five people we're not worth it. We're not going to make the news. We're not going to get any attention. Like we're not a worthy target. I don't know what the flag means, but I'm going to enjoy this glass of red wine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, and so what did the flag mean? What happened? It meant someone in their family had died. Oh, I know. That's sad. Yeah. It was a flag of mourning. Interesting. I know. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because like what you just said is like, you know, your rationale there was that you guys weren't a worthy target. But then we talk about how our worth, like our worth is humans. <laughs> so it's interesting how you can like flip so fast. Be like, you know, I am worth it. I am worthy to yeah. we're not worth it. <laughs> That's, that's interesting. I, I like that, you know, this is, this is an interesting conversation. So you live in a house with five people yeah, and you're not really allowed to do anything except for work and be at home. Yeah. So what was your time off? Like your one day off, like you just hung out at home. Were you allowed to go anywhere, experience the culture? So there were markets at the local um, like military base that we could go to on our days off. And to be honest with you, I think I might have bought bootleg DVDs of the television series called 24 and rewatched that like seven or eight seasons. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, several times. Um, um yeah. And I mean, it's, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna color it pretty. There was like booze was very cheap. And so there was just a lot of house parties at other people's homes where you drink and talk. And that was about it. Yeah. 
Sounds like growing up in Winnipeg. As a yeah. <laughs> Minus 40, you just go to a lot of house parties. <laughs> okay, so when you're, I don't know, is it called an assignment? When your assignment was done? You're listing, you're posting? My posting, yeah. When your posting was done, what was it like coming back to Ottawa? Like, how did you integrate back into Canadian life? Well, this is the other story that I really want to share with you, Blair. About two weeks before I was set to leave Kabul and come home, my grandfather in Canada passed away. And my boss said to me at the time, like, we can send you home tomorrow if like, it's okay, you don't need to stay another two weeks. But I said, like, look at the numbers of staff that need to travel throughout the country and stay safe to get to the Kabul airport that I'm responsible for knowing where they are and creating all those call lists. And that will just be a complete mess if I'm not around for two weeks. So no, I'm going to stay and I will um, honor my grandfather's death uh, by taking a day off um, in my own way at home. And so I took like a day off. (laughs) Like I never took a day off in seven months, just the one day that we all had off uh, a week. And so I had this day off and everybody else was at work. And in the whole time of the election, that was the one day that suicide bombers drove into the front of our compound and massive explosions from two cars that were loaded with explosives. And sadly, a lot of people who were at the gate did pass away and there was mayhem on the compound And the security team is, you know, getting everyone to safety. And then I know this is gruesome, but, you know, running around with garbage bags, cleaning up the mess. Wow. And like, I'm sitting at home in my bedroom, looking at family photos and thinking fondly of everybody who's gathering to honor my grandfather's passing. And I was completely spared from any of that experience that would have happened at work that day by taking that day off to honor my grandfather's passing. Whoa. Your grandpa's energy or spirit. Like there's, there's, there's no coincidences. None. The beautiful, I mean, it's not a beautiful story, but it's a beautiful story. Like it's a terrible story. How do you even explain that? Like it's, it's like this, that's a, I don't have words. I know, but it's kind of like another red carpet moment. Like I had said yes to precisely the things I was meant to say yes to. And I was precisely where I was meant to be. Wow. And did you have any idea that was happening? Well, I got I got some calls from some uh, friends that I had made that were on a nearby compound the moment they heard what had happened. And the moment I told them that I was at home and safe and not affected, you know, they just hang up, click, like they had other people to go save. Uh, and so, yeah, like it was. Wow. It was pretty cool. Wow. And so then I come home. And, you know, my, my family's grieving, my grandfather's passing and it's Christmas time. And this is the funniest thing. I wanted to go to second cup for a vanilla bean, uh, hot chocolate. For some reason, that was like the first thing I had to do when I got home. Uh, 
and I couldn't even drink half of it because there is no white refined sugar in Afghanistan. And I had gone seven months without eating sugar. You detoxed. And I had no, I'd lost 30 pounds and I didn't really realize why. <laughs> and uh, that vanilla bean hot chocolate taught me a lot. I was like, wow, sugar is powerful. And was that the last vanilla latte from second cup you ever had? <laughs> oh no. It Well, I mean, maybe that particular uh, form of sugar, but, uh, but yeah, my tolerance came right back. I think it maybe took three months before I was probably eating just as much sugar as before. <laughs> so what do you, okay. So what do you, like your experience in Afghanistan and like where you are now in life and career, like, what do you think, like reflecting on resilience and what you saw with, you know, what you saw with the people of, of, of gas, uh, sorry, of Afghanistan, that's a tongue twister, the people of Afghanistan and the families, like the families you met and your colleagues, like what were some of those lessons in resilience that you came away with? Hmm. Well, family is very important there. Um, And family is very important in, in my life and in my family system too. And so when it comes to surviving in the world, like you've got family, keep those relationships, nurture them, um, we had to change the frequency with which we paid the Afghan national staff because the moment they got paid, they would travel throughout the country and go share their paycheck with all of their different family members. Uh, and so they wouldn't report to work because it was more important to go share the wealth. Wow. Yeah. And so um, like that was an interesting cultural difference. Uh, <laughs> between uh between Canada that I noticed and there and so I realized there's this um also like a living for today yeah that happens when when survival is like really your number one thing to achieve every day it's what what do I need to do today um and that was a form of resilience it was like you know you didn't get lost in the you know, what about this? And what about that? And then the paralysis of not doing anything. It was like, no, what do I need to do today to eat, stay safe, have a shelter, um, you know, that kind of thing. And so there was this um, immediacy to choices that kind of felt liberating. And for me personally, having come from the, you know, the West, there was no, there's no Amazon delivery. There was no Bed Bath and Beyond to go spend my money at. Like there was none. There was nowhere to spend my money, and uh, there's, it was, it was really nice to step out of the whole consumerism. Like there was, there was nothing to do and nowhere to get on my time off. Interesting. Okay, so. You now like adapt to this life there, you know, you're in this new living in the now you have, you're making money, but having nowhere to spend it, but then you had to integrate back into Canada. At Christmas time, like the height of consumerism and sugar. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine, you know, and like 2005 was not just yesterday. Yeah. And a lot has changed in the last almost 20 years. Yes. What are some of the 
key lessons or key changes in your, you know, who you are, have you carried with you in the last couple decades? Well, relationships, you know, the relationships that I built while I was there, um, some of them stay with me to this day. And, you know, family is not just, you know, who gave birth to you and who you grew up with. It's chosen as well. And so how important it is to nurture those relationships and be real and authentic with people um, and to choose, like to choose your family. Yeah, to really choose that. I think that's so beautiful because, yeah, you're so right. We have our like given family, but then we have our chosen family. And it's interesting you said that because I've had some friends since I was three three decades and one of my good friends who I met in high school like she's beyond a good friend she's family and I was saying to her she came out to um, New York with me she came and met me in New York um her and another friend and I I was not doing well like after the loss of my mom and my dad and like grief and chaos and life and but I was on a billboard in Times Square so my friends two of my friends came to see it which is amazing because if my mom was alive she probably would have hopped on a plane to come there and um, it was nice to have my friends there. And I said, you know, I'm just so lucky to have you as like my forever friend. And they're like, you know, we're more than that. We're not just your friends, we're your family. Mm. And you know, what you just said is so beautiful. And it, it is about who you surround yourself with. Where do you spend that time? And like, you know, the red carpet moments, who you want to walk that red carpet with. Yeah. Right. Um, so tell, tell us like, what are you up to today? Like what's life like for Pamela French? Oh my gosh. So, um, another skill that I picked up there was reframing, like the power of being able to reframe how I'm viewing a situation. And so, um, I've really taken that to a whole new level in my life coaching. And so like, I can help anyone anywhere reframe anything at any time to an empowering context. And so Empowerment is Everything has been, um, you know, a business name and a blog that I started when I was like super young. It's just like Empowerment is Everything is how I live. Yes. Yeah. I love Empowerment. I mean, if the world is walking around in a, with an empowered context, imagine the choices that we make and how we speak to each other. And it's, I'm just really excited about that. And so that's, I, I do group programs and um, I lead events here in Canada's national capital, and uh, I'm available to do that internationally as well. And I'm looking at some retreats uh, this winter as well, because who doesn't want to go somewhere warm uh, when it's Sign cold? me up. I'll bring the resilience piece. <laughs> amazing. I'll facilitate. I'll facilitate. <laughs> yes. um, so that's amazing. So you do group coaching workshops. Maybe we're all going to go to retreat somewhere warm and learn from you. I love that. And I know you have a gift for our listeners. I do. So one of the modalities that I work with the most is communication because how we speak and listen to one another makes a difference. And we're not taught these things. We just, you know, most of us just speak as we speak and we don't think about the impact that it has on other people necessarily. And so I've learned and now I share these conscious communication skills so that you can speak and listen in a way that leaves others feeling deeply heard and seen. And so I have this uh, little 
you know, ebook with five ways to create connection and that feeling of like being deeply related to somebody. And that can happen at work or at home or even like at the grocery store with someone you meet. Oh my God. That's so good. Okay. So all of her links are in the show notes below. You know, if you're driving, pull over, tap the link, <laughs> remember to do it later. Um, I am very honored that you came on our pod, Radical Resilience, to share your knowledge, story, expertise, energy, wisdom, everything, sharing you with us. Um, I love it. Like you just have this light about you every time you talk, you just, you light up and just to be in your presence and your energy is such a gift. So thank you so much for coming on Radical Resilience. It's been an honor. Thank you, Blair. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode. Remember, it is okay to not be okay. Life is super hard, but could be super fun. You can do hard things. You're going to get through the hard times. I pinky promise. You're not alone. I'm here for you. Until next time. Thank you. That's a wrap for another episode of Radical Resilience. Do you feel inspired by this episode? You can subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player and connect with us to join the conversation at IamResilient.info. Remember, it's okay to not be okay. And you, my friend, are resilient. Radical Resilience is a podcast created by The Resilience Project.